Welcome back. This is the second hour of tonight's Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting live every weekend right here on Revolution.Radio, the finest of ultra-free speech, listener-sponsored network. So if you're a listener, go ahead and sponsor. You can go to Revolution.Radio and figure out how to help. And you can help me out by going to TruthJihad.com and subscribe to my Substack. That's kevinbarrett.substack.com, and I'd love to have you on board there. I send out all kinds of writing, early versions of my articles before they're published in places like American Free Press and Crescent International, as well as other fun stuff. All right, well, that's the obligatory announcement. Let's get down to the second hour of conversation. This attempts to be a heavily dialogic radio show, that is, we believe in dialogue, not monologue. We like to hear different voices, different perspectives, and especially those that are suppressed or otherwise absent from the mainstream that people should be hearing and aren't. So let's get on with some more dialogue. In this case, there'll be a philosophical interfaith uh, dialogue with political ramifications. Brand new Truth She Had radio guest is coming on tonight, Gila Ansari. She has a website, foreignpolicytruth.com, hasn't been updated for a while, and she has some very interesting views on U.S.-Iranian relations. Uh, she is, she is uh, Iranian herself, or Iranian-American, and uh, she also has uh, interesting views of, of religion and its uh, sociopolitical ramifications, and, of course, Zionism, and much more. So let's talk about that stuff. Hey, welcome, Gila Ansari. How are you? Hi, Dr. Barrett. Nice to see you or talk to you. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have you on. And someday maybe we'll I'll I'll be able to see you and you can see me. We can do a uh, a video interview, but we're doing just live radio tonight. And so let's see. Where where should we start? Let's you know, let me quickly just give you my history with Iran and and I'm not an expert. My academic expertise is more on North Africa and Morocco in particular, medieval Sufi saints legends and things like that. And I, I only really started to learn a few things, at least, about Iran in, uh, what was it, 2012, I guess, when they invited me to come over to the New Horizon conferences chaired by the late, great Nader Talibzadeh. And so I traveled to Iran every year, uh, sometimes twice a year, from the beginning of 2013 through, was it 2019, I think, when after a conference in Meshhad, uh, we came back, uh, we being me and other Americans who'd been invited there, and were told that if we went to their next conference, which was going to be held in Beirut, uh, we would be arrested upon setting foot back in the United States because New Horizon had been designated as a sanctioned entity by the Zionist-occupied U.S. Treasury Department and Sigal Mandelker, the Israeli woman who owned the Treasury Department at the time. So uh, basically everything I know about Iran, I kind of learned by way of my travels there and then the side reading I did uh, on, on that. And so uh, you, uh, you come from Iran and you have a kind of a totally different take on, on the history. So could you maybe introduce yourself and, and tell us, uh, about um, your Iran expertise. Sure. Um, so, by virtue of being Iranian, just uh, that doesn't mean that you become an expert because Iran, in particular, is pretty much shrouded in um, mystery. Purposefully, its its history is so revelatory in terms of, um, in my opinion, uh, revealing uh, 
or disproving the biblical narrative. And for that reason, particularly Iran's history has been co-opted, uh, I think, by the ancient Zionists to, uh, to the modern version as well. Um, Iran is really the, at the epicenter of um, both uh, the appropriate historical understanding of human development and also today's uh, um, political occurrences. Uh, so I, as I said, just by virtue of being Iranian, uh, I'm not an expert. I made it my life's uh, uh, mission to find out the truth because at the age of 11, I was uh, uh, exposed to the Islamic revolution. And at that time, my family was uh, uh, part of the upper class. And uh, by virtue of being uh, uh, from a, a wealthy background, we were targeted and, and sort of fled the country, but in, in a legal manner. And I thought the revolution was a people's revolution, as was told in mainstream media, until I actually came uh, to the States and uh, through a progression of events and studies, uh, found out that actually the revolution was pretty much a Zionist devised. Um, uh, it was a color revolution, as we refer to them today. And it was from, it was actually one of the earliest color revolutions. And, uh, Khomeini happened to be a um, very early, um, I could say, tool of Zionism selected uh, as, as a religious figure that would oppose uh, the Shah and the system in place uh, that the, the monarchy itself was um, part of the target of um, Zionism. All monarchies had to go because they uh, tended to be the, the monarchies that tended to have, uh, you know, nationalist uh, tendencies. Well, well, hold on, could, could I question that? Because the sure. Zionists, of course, they support the Saudi monarchy. They support now the Moroccan monarchy. They're getting ever friendlier with with that monarchy. Uh, do you? Why, why would you exactly. think the Zionists would care about whether another country is a monarchy or not, as long as it serves their their interests? Yeah, that's why I qualified my statement about not all monarchies are targeted by the Zionist uh, element, but the ones that have a nationalist fervor and, and really put their foot down in terms of protecting their populace as opposed to joining the uh, global initiative that Zionism has always been about. You know, but but let, um, let me question that about, about the Shah, because under the Shah, the population of Iran was pretty much like the population of Morocco when I was there in 2000, uh, 50% illiterate and uh, tremendous poverty. And that poverty has largely been, uh, if not quite ended, at least massively rolled back since the revolution. Uh, so uh, as opposed to something like Saddam Hussein, who of course wasn't a monarch, he was a dictator, but he obviously had the best interests of his uh, ordinary people at heart to a certain extent and put Iraq's oil money into building infrastructure and education to benefit ordinary people. Uh, I, I, everything I've read doesn't suggest that, that Iran under the Shah was remotely like that, but rather it was being ruled primarily for the benefit of upper class families like yours. Uh, that's not true. Uh, the, the, mm, the Shah's regime or, or monarchical system was actually uh, all about uh, progressivism, but the way it was uh, portrayed uh, by the Zionist media was 
not so because they didn't want to portray the Shah as a nationalist figure or that system as, as pursuing nationalist interests because the Shah had to be portrayed as a Western puppet in order to reduce the uh, legacy and importance of Iran as an, a historically civilizational power. Iran is one of the most important, if not the most important civilization of human history. And it has had so much contribution to mankind that uh, it's always presented a problem to the Zionist globalist aims. And from Reza Shah to Mohammad Reza Shah, both figures uh, are portrayed as puppets or brought in by the British and taken away by the British as they pleased, so that Iran is defamed and looked upon as some third world country that can be just beaten around by the Zionist or world powers. It, 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 it was meant to reduce the legacy of Iran, which can really counter the Zionist um, aims for, for globalist uh, power. Iran is a major contender in offering the world a philosophy that is both humane and historically accurate. It was a uh, Mithraic and then Zoroastrian-based uh, philosophy and offered no, um, the, no notions of fear, guilt, and punishment were not present in Iranian philosophies until the Abrahamic religions were um, introduced to the area, and it, it was the um, the history of Jews and their formation in uh, is really um, shown if we study the true uh, history of Iran. Many Western um, uh, historians actually have uncovered uh, the formation of uh, Jews and their religion very accurately. Uh, because Iran's um, documents and libraries and authors have been either um, burned or assassinated. And the evidence coming out of Iran has been completely hidden as to how Jews formed the Abrahamic religion. Okay, but, and, but, thanks, wait, uh, before, before you get into the Abrahamic religion, Jayla, could, could you um, correct me on my understanding of the Shah's uh, it's my understanding, just based on uh, a few uh, history books I've read on Iran, that the Shahs uh, of the past century and a little more tended to be more the, uh, shall we say, the, the puppets of the British and then the Americans. And then the Republican movements tended to be more nationalistic. And certainly that would have, was the case, at least according to all the histories I've seen, with the overthrow of Mossadegh and the installation of the last Shah in, in a CIA MI6 coup. Um, is that story wrong? Yes, it's very wrong. Uh, Mossadegh and the Shah actually worked together uh, in uh, nationalizing the oil, but they were uh, made to look like enemies, because again, if these two figures were found out to be working in unison in favor of nationalizing the oil, uh, the Western powers, the Zionists, would lose grip on Iran forever. 
Um, so they always try to bifurcate Iranian society, as they do today in every society. Okay, what are the sources for this? Uh, because, you know, we have to rely on specific historians and specific books. So can you just give me a few names uh, to read on this? Because I've, the yeah. every historian I've seen, whether they're, you know, pro-Islamic revolution, anti-Islamic revolution, uh, you know, that basically they all seem to agree that that the Republican movements were more nationalistic, the Shahs were more the tools of imperialism, and the story of the coup uh, in 1953 is told over and over and over by all sorts of different people from all sorts of different perspectives, and nowhere have I heard anything remotely like what you just said. Yeah, it's because the very critical, important uh, pieces of history, uh, they, they probably don't even come out 50, 70 years after the, you know, time is up for their intelligence, uh, their, what do you so, call so, it? The, just name, name a couple of sources, just so, just, just you know. I, I can't regarding this. I, I have, uh, I've been studying this uh, for the past 30 years. There's, different sources that I've read. I've read close to 1800 different books, not, you know, cover to cover, but there's a lot that I have read that it's hard to deduce it to one or two. Like on the 1953 revolution, like the the 1953 coup, I mean, you have to read in between the lines. Like, of course, all the shop men. Isn't isn't there somebody who's published a book who has read in between the lines in the way that you believe? Uh, I, I certainly have derived my information from various sources, but I can't name them right now because I've read so much that it, it, I can't recall which author specifically. There are Iranian authors, uh, American books, writers that have uh, brought this issue to light. But uh, I'm sorry, I can't name a particular source right now. If I've locate one, I will definitely send it to you and you can share it with your audience. But uh, let me just elaborate on exactly uh, what happened with the Mossadegh. First of all, the the, um, the mainstream uh, blurb about Mossadegh having been demo- democratically elected, that's, that's just not true. Uh, the parliament in Iran, with the approval of the Shah, assigned who the uh, prime minister was. So the Shah actually approved of Mossadegh's uh, uh, appointment as a prime minister. And also in order to remove the prime minister, uh, there had to be the Shah's approval. So Mossadegh was neither elected by the Iranian population nor let go. It was uh, the Shah actually refused to sign the decree that the British imposed upon him to let Mossadegh go. And he, he refused to sign that. He rather leave the country, which he did, until things settled down because he knew that the British and the Americans were, were conspiring to set him and Mossadegh apart. And, and they did, uh, unfortunately, because of the way that these operations work, however much people want to work together, operations are set in to um, set people apart. Brother and sister can, can become enemies by virtue of uh, the the bizarre operations that are implemented and and the Shah and Mossadegh were definitely uh, made to be enemies so that uh, both the Shah could be uh, painted as a puppet of the West and Mossadegh was labeled as a communist and and the religious uh, segment was uh, used 
uh, both in uh, propping up Mossadegh at one time and then dethroning him, uh, you know, whenever the British thought that he was a threat. It, it, the whole thing was one of, it was actually the first CIA operation uh, designed to create chaos between nationalists and um, supposedly monarchists. And it was, they, they, they happened to be successful. And to this day, they defamed the Shah because, uh, you know, he actually acted in uh, against the interests of his own country and was therefore a puppet. But ultimately, the Shah was so nationalistic that they had to poison him to get him out of um, office. It, it was the last 10 years of his reign. He was essentially um, being slowly poisoned. His uh, Close doctors actually turned out to be uh, very um, closely associated with the Mossad. But uh, nowhere do you read about neither his poisoning or the fact that they actually even poisoned Soraya, his second wife, uh, and she wasn't able to give birth. And uh, therefore, he had to divorce her and marry Farah and uh, to, to create a, a, an heir to his throne. So the poor guy has been historically defamed in order to uh, weaken Iran, not because he was an actual dictator or he was uh, really bad for his countrymen. He, he was a patriot. He was a nationalist. But he did work with the Americans and with the British, thinking that communism is a real threat, as they were signaling everywhere throughout the world. And he was one of many um, heads of state that was forced into accepting the Western um, hegemony and not going under the Eastern uh, communistic hegemony. Let me uh, just quickly interject that my uh, my first visit to Iran in February of 2013 uh, was that was my first uh, introduction to the place. And the first place that they took me was to the Shah's palace, which has now been preserved as a sort of a uh, heritage site almost. And it's huge. It's just uh, kind of amazing. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Uh, a um, just incredible palatial uh, compound. And then we were taken to the uh, Imam Khomeini's residence where he lived from the time he returned to Iran after the 1979 revolution uh, to uh, his death. And it was a very modest, small house attached to a, a larger, but still very small by mosque standards, uh, mosque where he gave his speeches. And the uh, view of the tour organizers was that this exemplified the difference between a kind of a megalomaniacal, extremely wealthy Sybarite uh, in, uh, who was an absolute kind of dictator and a, a kind of a Pharaoh figure uh, from the, the Quran's portrayal of Pharaoh as a power-hungry, egotistical individual versus uh, the Imam Khomeini being the exemplar of the rightly guided leader who has no interest whatsoever in materialism, is purely interested in the spiritual, is a person of taqwa or uh, God-fearing, uh, God-loving piousness, and that this ties in with the philosophy of governance of Islam and also 
the classical philosophy of, uh, of the Greco-Roman tradition, which is essentially that leaders should be the very best people, that is, people who've overcome all ego, ego all worldly ambition, and become the, the, the spiritually most advanced among us should be the leader. And usually that person doesn't particularly want to be leader, so they have to be forced to be leader uh, in, in most cases. In any case, so that, that was what I first saw in Iran. And basically, I certainly agree with that philosophy uh, that I think that the world today is in the horrific state that it's in precisely because we have allowed the greedy, egotistical people who want power and enjoy power to have power. And the correct way to govern is to essentially handicap those people and possibly even you have to kill some of them uh, or imprison them or exile them. And you elevate the most spiritually advanced person who has absolutely no ego or concern with anything uh, material, but will govern purely with a view towards justice. This was Plato's view, and this was the Islamic view as well. That's the person who should govern. And so I was essentially told in Iran that that's what we had, that we had a pharaoh, a egotistical, greedy, ambitious type of individual, the Shah, who was then replaced by a pious and spiritual, non-egotistical and non-materialistic man who lived in this very, very, very modest house and governed purely out of what he thought was uh, was just. So why were that, those yeah. people wrong? Because, uh, first of all, the Shah's palaces, uh, in comparison to other, you know, like uh, European monarchs, or not even monarchs, European statesmen, if you compare their estates, the Shah uh, estates are very humble in comparison. And we're talking humble? about uh, the <laughs> oldest monarchy yeah, in me. the world. Yeah, well, if you if you visit some of the uh, palaces, the, the Parisian palaces of just a nobleman, not even well, an It wasn't Versailles, that's true. Yeah, it, it's, it's not even comparable. You know, Iran is the oldest monarchy in the world. It should have had many, many palaces, many different sites that people could visit. But it, 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 I mean, it's actually shameful what we have in Iran in, in terms of uh, palaces or any grand uh, buildings. We don't have them. There, it's, a, it's a very uh, humble looking country for the history that it's had. And it's partly because many of the sites, uh, archaeologically important sites, have been destroyed purposefully. Well, it, it, um, Isfah, but, Isfahan was quite amazing. The the uh, square in Isfahan and, and the mosques there, I thought, were just incredible. I mean, I can't think of really better urban architecture than that. And that's what you, you don't want palaces. You don't want greedy, egotistical, greedhead uh, dictators and kings to be making fancy monuments to their egos, which will only, you know, collapse like Ozymandias's. What you want is temples to the sacred that all people can enjoy equally, don't you? Uh, temples to the sacred, it depends on what is sacred, who is sacred. You know, I don't believe that uh, just because uh, somebody is named sacred, we should build shrines and, you know, the proliferation of sh shrines all over Iran is uh, I, I, oh, they're, they're gorgeous. I, I love them. I, I had a, a really amazing experience in uh, in the shrine in in the poem. Uh, it's it's uh, to, to me that that kind of architecture and that kind of civilizational 
uh, establishment of uh, rituals tied in with the architecture to enable ordinary people to have that experience of the sacred, that's the, that's the highest point possible of any civilization. Not when it's only that. I mean, you have to have other dimensions of culture and history presented, uh, you know, because it has veracity. It's not, we're not talking about making up a culture or history uh, just as posers, you know, that want to create a grand uh, version of themselves. Iran actually has much to be proud of, much to teach the rest of humanity by virtue of its history and its accomplishments, its scholars. But what is now presented or has been the Zionist obsession with Iran is to paint Iran as a religious uh, entity. And that's by design because Iran has so many other dimensions to, to bring so, to so humanity. Because the Iranian uh, civilizational power is so huge that by by uh, redefining it and bringing it only into a um, one-dimensional religious and only a Shi'i version of Islam, you you deduce Iran's grandness to just one revolutionary Shi'i movement, and that's no, all what, what, you present so, Iran so as. So, so, but don't you think that, like, what's the population of Iran now? Sort of a hundred million ish, or something like no, that. No, it's eighty-two million it's right now. Heading for a hundred, but yeah, okay. So, eighty million Iranians, um, uh, as the vanguard of the uh, pushing two billion, I think it's one point eight billion Muslims, uh, and right in the heartland of Islam, doesn't Iran enjoy immensely more? Um, civilizational power than it would if it were simply a little independent, broken off nation without that uh, role as the vanguard of Islam. It, it, uh, I think giving Iran the impression that it's leading the Islamic world is just uh, that. Well, of course, of course, hyperbole. It it's, 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 well, it's well known that the seminaries in Iran are advanced beyond those anywhere else, that the classical educational Tradition has been preserved uh, far better in Iran, not only than in any other Islamic country, but in any other non-Muslim country as well. If you want to do Western classical education, you couldn't do better than going and enrolling in a seminary in Qom. I mean, that's widely known, isn't it? The good thing about the religious um, aspect that is um, taking over Iran or has taken over in the past 40 years is that by virtue of the cornering Iran into this, you know, religious aspect, uh, Zionism has uh, um, actually um, shot itself in the foot because Iran has to fall back on all of its dimensions to even fortify its religious revolution. And it is doing that, but uh, labeling it as Shi'i revival or, or philosophy, but under the current, even in Qom, uh, the seminarians are considering who they are as Iranians, bringing forth the Shi'i uh, knowledge to it, it is a Shi'ism is now being used as a political tool, at, whereas actually Zionism didn't intend that, you know, it was basically to um, reduce Iran to a religious uh, environment, uh, society, but it's backfired on them. So Iran today is actually uh, 
acting in benefit of um, humanity by virtue of really fighting back against Zionist uh, and globalist forces. But it has to be careful not to reduce itself and its history in a way that Zionists actually want. For example, um, in Iran, uh, they are protecting uh, certain Jewish um, fallacies or myths at the expense of their own, Iran's own progress and, and strength, even politically. The tomb of Daniel, who uh, is not a real prophet, is not a real figure. I know based on religious uh, um, eschatology, they are. But I, 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 don't in, think Dan, I don't think Daniel shows up in, in the Quran. Uh, the Quran does mention many uh, prophets from the Torah, but I don't think Daniel is among them. I, I could be wrong, but I don't well, recall. Well, English. there's a tomb of Daniel in Iran in a very sensitive spot in the uh, uh, city of Shush, which was Susa. It was a place where Iranian kings actually were, you know, it was one of the um, capitals of Iran. There were three capitals during the uh, Achaemen- Achaemenid Empire, and uh, one of them was Susa. And there, uh, uh, the tomb of Daniel uh, persists to this day and is guarded. And whereas this was actually the tomb of one of the um, past kings of Iran or an important vizier. And the way we know that is this place had jeweled ceilings. The jewels were stolen. And after a couple of centuries, Daniel was buried there. And for hundreds of years, Iranians have been duped into thinking that this is a sacred site with a sacred prophet and they forgot about their own history, the kings and all their accomplishments. And now they revere a, a prophet that even according to some Jews did not exist, is a mythical figure. Even worse with Esther. Esther is a, definitely a, a, a mythical figure, completely acknowledged by Jews. Even in the Jewish encyclopedia, they list Esther as a mythical figure. And Esther and Mordecai are as you know, in the Purim celebrations every year, Israelis or Jews all over the world uh, have celebrated the the death of 70,000 Iranians because supposedly Esther and Mordecai uh, influenced Hashar Shah, the king, uh, to kill so many Iranians because they were about to genocide the Jews of Iran. This is a complete fabrication of history. Not only was there no Esther, but uh, there was no intention to genocide Jews. But from you know at least a thousand years now, Jews have been training fellow Jews to hate Iranians based on this fabrication of history. This is incredibly harmful, not only for Iranian-Jewish relationships, but for the world. I mean, you're training hateful. Um, terrorists that will terrorize Iran until this fallacy is shown to them to be false. But how could you undo a thousand years of brainwashing and and get rid of Purim? Just like many of the Jewish celebrations, 
this again, it celebrates the death of innocent people. And so I, I think that following certain uh, you know, narratives, uh, Zionist narratives or Jewish narratives, particularly as it relates to Iran, is detrimental uh, for humanity. Um, even yeah, Cyrus didn't agree, recognize with Esther and the Purim narrative, uh, I can't, I can't argue with that. It's, it's, it's such a bizarre thing that, that, you know, academic people know that this is false, but since when does the voice of a true academic reach the mainstream population? It's, it's really horrendous, but well, we, you know, also, uh, Jill, Jill, we're, we're, we're kind of into the second half hour. And so maybe we could sort of segue to the very closely related topic of uh, Abrahamic monotheism in general. And uh, as I understand it, you sort of lean towards the type, the view of Adam Green, that, that Abrahamic monotheism to some extent is a sort of Jewish conspiracy to mind control the world and ultimately take it over. I, I'm sure you're probably not as quite as hardcore as Adam is, but you know, nobody is. But uh, I, I would argue that there are some uh, very grave errors that have crept into the Torah and the, what we call the Jewish tradition today, which is simply the tradition of Abrahamic monotheists who stubbornly got it wrong by sticking with all those wrong things of their tribalistic, particularistic, uh, not even real monotheism, but henotheism, which is believing in, a, in their own tribal God as the best God, but also believing in the existence of other polytheistic gods. So that's the people we call Jews today are those people that uh, made a mistake in, and didn't properly preserve the monotheistic tradition. Christians are the people who embraced uh, Jesus, uh, Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam, who is a, clearly a prophet of monotheistic universalism and who clearly uh, brings a message that corrects many of the evils of the so-called Jewish tradition of the Torah and then, of course, the Talmud that followed. Uh, and, and today, uh, Islam is the most recent uh, revelation of the correctly perceived uh, uh, universal Abrahamic monotheism. And like Christianity, but even more so, Islam corrects the record and fixes these uh, yeah, some of them are actually horrors that crept into what today is called Judaism. Uh, there's no holiday in Islam remotely like Purim, or, nor in Christianity for that matter. The only ho two holidays in Islam, the two Eids, are one is the Feast of the Sacrifice, which is celebrating the end of human sacrifice with the story of uh, Abraham uh, being told not to sacrifice his son, that symbolically encodes the end of the human sacrifice religions, mainly sacrifice of children, which were ubiquitous throughout the Mediterranean area. And in fact, that type of human sacrifice is ubiquitous in holding together all traditional civilizations, as Rene Girard has told us. So, so Islam anyway has, has a, its main holidays are, uh, the feast at the end of the fast of Ramadan and then the feast celebrating the end of human sacrifice. So that's very different from Purim. And likewise, the Christian holidays are too. So uh, I, I, I would argue against Adam Green and perhaps against you that the universal monotheisms, in particular the last and best preserved one, Islam, get Abrahamic monotheism right. And that the, those that we call Jews today have preserved uh, some 
errors or or errors have crept into that. And of course, that's actually the scriptural position, or that's the official position of Islamic scholarship is that indeed uh, the the Quran tells us that the earlier traditions made these mistakes and uh, and they're now being corrected. So uh, I know you you tend to think that Abrahamic monotheism in general is a problem. Uh, as Adam does. And so maybe you could sketch out your view of this, uh, to what extent you agree and disagree with, with Adam. I see what is happening today as the um, framework that, that pretty much has been used by Jews for the past 17, 1800 years. They don't go back to the time of Cyrus at all, uh, but certainly For 1,700 years, it can be established that this this religious, um, the Abrahamic uh, faith ha has been using both, uh, the, the Jews have been using both Islam and Christianity as their front, as their foot soldiers. And, and that, this can be traced from 1,700 years to today. I, I basically work myself back from what we see happening today, how Jews are using, you know, the uh, nationalist uh, Christians and the Islamic radicals to moderates in, in their own um, as, as tools. They, they hide behind first Judaism, then Islam, and then Christianity whenever it suits them. But They really are just a mafia that is working for their own benefit, not for the benefit of humanity. And it's, it's so apparent to the um, non-indoctrinated, uh, those of us who step away and, and observe religion uh, as, as the tools that were created to manage populations, which They really are, if they are portraying themselves as moral principles, they still are trying to manage populations' behaviors. But it's been used to uh, increase the power of Jews, not, not anybody else. I mean, and that's been systematically shown if we study history. And they've moved from the Persian Empire into the uh, Roman and Venetian and the British and the American and Russian and all the way back to the Middle East. And all through this vein of history, we see how they've used not just Islam and uh, Christianity, but every ideology that they could muster and promote. They've worked both sides of them, pro and con, to create these dualities within our world. And Islam and Christianity are, are not to be accepted just because they are offering some people solace and uh, uh, comfort. We all need that kind of spiritual comfort at times of need. And I, I have no, uh, there's no dearth of understanding on my part that, you know, human psychology certainly uh, created our, you know, the notion of God and heaven and hell to comfort us. But, but this was just hijacked and used as a tool of, again, uh, gaining power over the rest of us by the Jews.
Let um, me question the, the comforting part, because that sort of reminds me of the people who say that the conspiracy theorists make up these stories of, you know, the 9-11 being an inside job and JFK being killed by insiders in order to comfort themselves because they uh, they can't deal with the fact that the world is so random and so chaotic. So they need to impose some sort of comforting form on the chaos of events. And so rather than having Kennedy murdered by a crazed lone nut named, named Lee Harvey Oswald, the crazy conspiracy theorists comfort themselves by imagining that there is some conspiracy behind it. Likewise, you know, they don't like to accept that it's just a crazy uh, thing that just happened with a bunch of radical Muslims hijacked planes and blew up the World Trade Center with them. So instead, they come up with this conspiratorial story to comfort them. So that is one of the very first things that the sort of uh, thought police will will say about why there are these conspiracy theories. And uh, obviously those uh, thought police are wrong, uh, grossly, ridiculously, absurdly wrong. It is not comforting to know that John F. Kennedy had his brains blown out in broad daylight by perpetrators of an evil coup d'etat and that his alleged lone assassin then was shot on camera in front of tens of millions of people on live television uh, by a uh, mob hitman. Uh, That's not comforting at all. It's not comforting at all to know that insiders, uh, with the acquiescence of the top levels in the U.S. government and executive branch and U.S. military and intelligence agencies, they all acquiesced in or participated in blowing up the World Trade Center and murdering nearly 3,000 innocent people. Uh, That's not comforting at all. And so likewise... I think that the uh, knowledge of the transcendent, which we will call God, because that's the word that we use in this monotheistic tradition, is it's not just comforting. There may be an aspect of it that is uh, somewhat could be comforting in some situation. But overall, I think uh, it's actually maybe at least as terrifying, if not more terrifying than it is comforting to know that we are spiritual beings having a material experience that's often quite, you know, uh, quite uh, frightening and and horrific, and that it's a test, and that the part of us that actually pursues our own self-interest and ego is actually, that's, that's failing the test, and that we will suffer in eternity to the extent that we fail the test, and that only the the ecstasy of eternity will come to the extent that we've passed that test. Well, that's pretty tough because all, we are uh, so conditioned to pursue self-interest, to be these little selves that are concerned with the well-being and power and pleasure of this fleshly animal that we briefly, all too briefly, inhabit. And to know how we betrayed our souls Throughout so much, if virtually all of our lives we've betrayed our souls by our identification with this egotistical animal self, the Nafsul Amrabisu, that's terrifying and it's horrific. And deep down inside, a lot of us, if not almost all of us, know that we are blowing it. We're screwing up. We're steering ourselves towards hellfire, uh, towards the eternity that the Tibetan Book of the Dead describes as almost like a bad acid trip that goes on forever because the 
the cell, you didn't transcend the self in this life. And so it just devours you for eternity after you die. And if that priest whispers in your ear well enough, maybe it'll, it'll save you. So I, I think I think religion is getting at a truth, an absolute truth of the human condition that is really much more terrifying than comforting, just as the so-called conspiracy theories, at least the true ones, are more terrifying than comforting. But there's so much there. I wish I could uh, answer all of what you just uh, talked about. Uh, but what I just can respond with is, isn't it ironic that the conspiracy theory uh, um, messaging is always um, about an actual conspiracy that has benefited the 1%, uh, whether it's John F. Kennedy's assassination or 9-11, we are told to believe a really simplistic narrative because, of course, believing the truth would uh, damage the 1% uh, possession of, of, you know, their, their version. But regarding religiosity and how um, the Abrahamic religions offer spiritual elevation past the point of comfort, but in, in terms of actually giving us salvation, I, I think it actually does the opposite because the messaging within the Abrahamic faith is so fear and guilt-based. And right from the start, we label humans as sinners. And you know that when you focus on a certain thought and you keep repeating that decade after decade, century after century, that becomes part of the mindset and collective psyche of the adherence of those beliefs, and they make that happen. They make themselves sinners because they don't practice being good because they always feel like they're fallible, that what they have to look up to is the sky and not their fellow good humans or not their own uh, good soul, but but that goodness only lies outside of themselves and their fellow humans. It's incredibly damaging, and it has damaged the human uh, psyche after so many, thousand, you know, 2,000 years almost of this Abrahamic uh, belief system. We still are living in such terrible uh, moral conditions, and it's because these Abrahamic faiths have failed us. They have damaged our psyches. Instead, we should have been focusing on what our true potential is, which is all good. We are born good. And well, well, that's, what Islam, that's what Islam says. Islam rejects original sin and says that we're, uh, we're born Muslim, we're born good. But isn't, Islam says, basically, Islam is taslim, means give up, surrender. Surrender itself, it reminds me of the 12-step program where the first thing they tell you is, you know, let go, let God, you can't do anything, you don't have control of your own destiny. And that's what Islam does. It, it takes the power out of your own hands and gives it over to another entity that we don't still have any evidence of based on just even changing our moral behavior or even being able to have courage to speak uh, truth to power. We, we don't even have courage. We can't even stop lying. You know, 
uh, one of the first things I mentioned in a religious group I was uh, I was meeting a bunch of religious people many many years ago and they were talking about how Islam has um, the knowledge of you know astronomy and it has so much scientific basis that that that's proof for its um, otherworldliness of its divinity and not only did I point to the fact that morality had existed before the Abrahamic faith, but I said, well, if Islam or any other religion hasn't been able to even accomplish uh, training humanity not to lie, which is the most basic thing or the most prevalent sin, then then how can we claim that it has succeeded, succeeded in, in any way? Well, and lying well. is so prominent among humanity. Yeah, I, I think there's there's some truth in what you're saying, certainly about the um, preoccupation with sin, turning people into sinners rather than helping them overcome sin. That's that's a pretty good point. I've, I've been rereading some Nathaniel Hawthorne recently and uh, that Protestant tradition uh, with uh, Cotton Mather and Nathaniel Hawthorne representing it here in the United States is uh, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, yeah, that, that's definitely uh, yeah, there's there's some truth in, in that analysis. Uh as for whether, say, let's say Islam or Abrahamic monotheism has made people better or not, now that's a big question because I don't think anybody is claiming that something, some system of uh, ideas and practice, ritual practices and symbols and so on is automatically going to make everybody absolutely perfect overnight, make everybody a wali Allah or a saint overnight. But I think we've had a lot of saints in both the Islamic and Christian traditions. The Jewish tradition, um, I'm not sure about, but I've studied the saints of Islam and to a much lesser extent Christianity. And uh, also the, you know, the, the, the Salihin and the, the pious people and the people of Taqwa. Now, a lot of them are just ordinary people. I collected folklore in Morocco when I was doing PhD research on uh, all kinds of stories about this. There was this pious old man who lived next door who used to wake up every morning for the Fajr prayers, you know, four in the morning in the summertime. He woke up really early and he went and prayed, did all of his prayers on time. And he had, it's very self-effacing and they're humble and there's something just beautiful about him. And then when he died, uh, his corpse gave off this very powerful smell of roses, uh, you know, these kinds of stories. Right. And, and mm-hmm. so I, I think there's something to them. That is, I, I think that a great many people have actually been saved by these great teachings uh, that originally had a divine origin, were preserved by human beings, and the people who took them seriously enough and uh, put their hearts and souls into carrying them out enough uh, really benefited tremendously. And I think overall society's benefited quite a lot also, which is one reason that these these ways of life uh, and, and sacred symbol systems spread and were adopted by more and more people because they all find them beneficial. Uh, Islam spread most of all, not by conquest, but by example that Asia and most of Africa were in, in fact, uh, came to Islam, uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, of course, being the most populous part of the Muslim world through trade and the traders uh, of early Islam and actually throughout most of history, maybe a little less so today, uh, were notorious for being honest. That is, the Muslim traders had a common system of weights and measures, and you knew what you were getting from them, and they actually cared for their eternal soul, and so they weren't going to try to swindle you. So you say, well, Islam and the rest of monotheism didn't completely eradicate lying. 
Well, no, but I think it actually has rolled it back somewhat. And I think that the world that we're in right now is the uh, end times, perhaps. The, certainly the world where, where that uh, pious element has, has been uh, really beaten down. And and even today, you know, I, one of the when I first went to Morocco uh, to live for a year and do my research, my assumption was that the really uh, fanatical Muslims, the really pious Muslims, the intensely religious Muslims, would be dangerous, scary, terrorist type people, and the secular, nice edu- Western educated secular people that could speak European languages like English and French uh, very well, and so on, those would be the people I could get along with, and the people that I would uh, presumably trust more. And what I found was the opposite. What I found was that in Moroccan culture, and since then I've gotten this impression of other Islamic cultures as well, that in these cultures, the people you have to watch out for are the people who've lost their religion. And the people who are practicing, praying five times a day, uh, and you know, really being, uh, you know, really living out their religion and being highly religious are trustworthy uh, people for the most part. And those who aren't, much less so. At least that's been my impression. You know, when you travel through the Islamic world, you do see a lot of good, uh, humble human beings. And and throughout the Western world, when we um, see people who are the veiled women at the airports, I, I often remark to people I'm traveling with that you see how they have placed veiled women, Islamic women, in, in very security-oriented places. It's almost like messaging us that, look, these are so trustworthy that despite the fact that we're uh, essentially denigrating Islam all over the world, we're trusting Muslims more than, like, let's say, wait, secular wait no, nobody, people. Nobody placed them there. They're just normal Muslim women who are traveling who have the guts to put something on their uh, to dress in such a way that people see them as Muslims and then often mistreat them. I mean, those are brave warriors of, of the good and of, of Islam. Aren't they these women? I, I, by by no, I mean the uh, women employed in airports. Oh, okay, security related. Okay. No, 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 try, not travel. Yeah, you've noticed how in airports, like in a lot of security related places, we have a lot of Islamic covered women. I don't know. I've noticed that. In, in, I didn't notice that. I've, I've noticed tra- traveling women in hijab quite a bit, but I never really noticed uh, airport workers wearing hijabs. Yeah, it's it's uh, almost a purposeful thing that um, anyway we I don't have anything to say about the average uh, adherent of Islam or Christianity or even Judaism they they are in my opinion uh, victims of um, a certain uh, mentality that was imposed on them or they were born into it and despite the fact that it offers them an, a, a comforting or a, a, a evolving uh, spirituality, it, it, it enhances their lives. It is limiting in, in terms of being able to really understand the world in its full complexity, because it is just one way of looking at the world as opposed to putting everything together and, and uh, calculating the real mechanisms that this 
uh, universe is, is operating on. You know, I, th- I think there's you may be onto something there, Gila. I think there's an obscurantism that is one of the biggest problems in the Islamic world today, and it may be related to the way people perceive and practice Islam. But we probably have to continue that conversation later because I think we hit the end of the hour. Uh, well, okay. thank you. I, I, I thought that was a really, really uh, interesting bunch of ideas, some of which, of course, I'm not uh, totally on board with, but I'm always interested in hearing uh, provocative viewpoints, and you certainly provided some. So thank you so much, Jila Ansari. It's, it's been wonderful. Uh, keep up the good work, and God bless. And I do hope to bring you back on to continue the conversations. Great. Thank you, Dr. Barrett, for giving me the opportunity. Take care. Jila right. This is Trinity Hub Radio. Thank you for listening to the Revolution.